0: Amen. Thank you, Madison and Jessica. Appreciate that. What a what a blessing to be in a place with such excitement and joy this morning, and laughter and humor and fun and and um, who are we to be so trouble free and carefree here? As we think about the big spectrum of things in Christianity, um, we have relatively. Fewer worries and anxieties than around the world our brothers and sisters share. And I think during our time of worship, who are we to deserve such warmth, friendliness, such safety and such blessing? And we sang with joyful hearts this morning and we sang with great sincerity. And I thought to myself, God, will that same passion be there? Would would we sing so robustly if circumstances were a little different? If things weren't so safe for us, would we come and bow before you and worship you with the same vigor? We're going to look at continue to look into the Sermon on the Mount at Jesus's holy words this morning. And it's the last beatitude in our study is persecution. Persecution. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we are the body of Christ and when one rejoices we all rejoice with them and when one suffers we all feel it we all suffer Brett Bart news said that 2016 was the worst year ever for persecuted Christians In Iraq there were where there were once million, I'm told that it's down to about 300,000 Christians. In Syria, more than 50% of the refugees that we hear about on the news constantly are Christians fleeing for their lives. In India, radical Hinduism puts Christians at great risks for random attacks and imprisonment. Pakistan has a blasphemy law whereby people can be put in prison or killed for their faith in Christ. In the Sudan, Christians are facing death sentences for apostasy laws, where they are not very friendly at all to those that have faith in Christ and are often given death sentences simply for professing Christ. China is still arresting their pastors, still Torturing pastors, still demolishing the underground church. North Korea is hailed as the most dangerous place to live if you are a Christian. It's reported that tens of thousands are in slave labor camps. What is becoming of the Coptic Christians in Egypt? Our mo- one of our most ancient fellowships of the saints developed around the second, third century. They are practically distinct. It is said now that Christianity, and I don't know if it's always been, obviously it hasn't always been like this, but I don't know where the turning point was. But now, nonetheless, is the most persecuted religion in the world. Why are you a Christian? You realize that your faith is among the most persecuted on this earth. And we are no stranger to witnessing this kind of persecution. How long ago was it when we watched on the news? Believers lined up on the beach with hoods over their heads before they were beheaded for their faith. Many Christians meet just like we are right now, particularly on special holidays, celebrations such as such as Easter Easter. They meet not knowing if they're going to walk out of the service alive or not. So Jesus says to those that are gathered among him as he delivers this sermon on the hillside, he has followers. People are interested in his message. They're interested in this man that can work miracles in this man that can speak in a way that they've never heard anybody speak before. And among those words, he says in Matthew chapter five, verses 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Words from William Blake's Auguries of Innocence. He says, joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. Under every grief and pine runs a joy with silken twine. It's just like our sovereign God to fit his children with a perfect clothing, woven together with the hardships, the trials and the joys and become one. And they're custom made for each of us. He fits us for the life that he desires us to live in Christ. This particular beatitude, it's the last one. Kent Hughes says the repetition of this beatitude, and we'll read a little more later in sermons to come, not this morning. Its repetition, its personalization, its position at the end of the list tells us that it's of supreme importance to the church. Significantly, when stretched out on the loom of adversity, the church has repeatedly woven persecution and joy Into garments of divine praise. I want to look at three things this morning in this passage. And first, the nature of persecution. What exactly does Jesus mean by referring to this word? Well, it's probably what you think it means. It's not a fun thing to be persecuted. Uh, The word has the root idea of being pursued, of being chased, of being harassed. to cause to suffer, to be mean to, to threaten. Jesus actually uses the words uh, evil, to be reviled. People have the sole intent of harming you, of hurting you, whether they do it physically or verbally. So it's the idea of being assaulted for your faith, being accused falsely, purposely being singled out, with the intent of causing suffering and harm. It could be anything from just a dirty look because somebody happens to know, overheard you speaking about Christ. It could be something as simple as you sat down and they get up. It could be whispers behind your back. It could be gossip. It could be you're not going to be a part of our group. Ever. It could be some kind of persecution for certain decisions you've made in your life. Maybe you're being persecuted because you decided you're going to be a stay-at-home mom. Maybe you're persecuted as a family for deciding how many children you are going to have. Things that aren't popular in our culture. Maybe you've been persecuted for efforts that you've made to guard your marriage, to keep it safe, like Vice President Mike Pence, who... Said, I'm not going to have lunch alone with another female to guard my marriage. And boy, was that attacked and pounced upon, mocked. It could come in different forms, maybe even warning shots, maybe your mailbox vandalized, windows broken, graffiti, who knows? It could even come from bullets, from weapons, from bombs, explosions. Such as some some churches experience or yes, maybe from hoods over your head before you are beheaded for your faith in Christ. It comes in various forms and to various degrees. And Jesus is very, very aware of every, every form of suffering that takes place within his body. The body, his body over which he is the head. He knows What it feels like to suffer. He knows what it feels like to be falsely accused simply because of what you believe and how you live and for who you are, at least now in Christ. And he gets personal here. He starts out by saying those who are persecuted and then he changes mid sermon to say you. When you are persecuted, as if to say my child, you will be persecuted if this is the path you choose to take. If you walk in my footsteps, you will suffer. How good of God to just lay it out there. Who does that? What kind of recruiting method is that? Are we supposed to paint flowers and pictures of just joy and parties and well-being? And he turns to his disciples and basically says, it's going to happen to you. You will be persecuted. But when you are, I'm going to know what you're thinking. I'm going to know that I'm going to know the temptations that you're going to have. I'm going to know when you're weak. I'm going to know when you're strong and I will be with you all the way. And I want you to know that no matter what you suffer, it is well, well Worth it. So the nature of persecution. It comes at us for a specific reason. And that is because we have identified with Christ. We have thrown our life at his mercy and grace. We've given him our soul. We've entrusted our very presence and essence into his hands for eternity and we've made decisions to live according to his divine, holy, true word that he has blessed us with. His commandments. It's it's those reasons that we suffer and are persecuted. It's not just generic suffering that the Lord is talking about here. And we suffer for other reasons. I have suffered not Because I was a Christian, but as a Christian, I've suffered because I've done stupid things and made unwise decisions in my life. And I've been persecuted for them, but it's because I wasn't acting like Christ. It's because I wasn't being righteous, not because I was. We can suffer for those reasons. You might say, Pastor, I got tickets on the way to church, three tickets this month on the way to church. It's Christian persecution. No, it's not. Breaking the law. It's because you're not being like Christ. So we want to be careful here. It's persecution not for being unrighteous, but for being righteous. There's no reward in being persecuted for being unrighteous. Only fines. And you don't have to be persecuted all the time. A lot of times we think of what you have to be a martyr to be one of these. You have to die for the faith. No, you don't have to be. Persecuted all the time, it may come in small spurts, may be mild forms. You may never shed blood for Christ, but if you are ridiculed, if evil is hurled at you because of your identity in the faith, that's persecution. It counts and Jesus knows it and you will be rewarded for it. It doesn't have to be dramatic Hollywood form just has to be for righteousness sake. D.A. Carson says this beatitude serves as a test for all the beatitudes. Just as a person must be poor in spirit to enter the kingdom, so will he be persecuted because of righteousness if he is to enter the kingdom. The final beatitude becomes one of the most searching of them and binds up the rest. For if the disciple of Jesus never experiences any persecution at all, it may fairly be asked where righteousness is being displayed in his life. If there's no righteousness, no conformity to God's will, how will he ever enter into the kingdom of God? So the nature of persecution. But why? Why does persecution come? Why must Christians suffer through this? Well, Jesus says it's gonna happen in verse eleven because of me. It's it's on my account. In John fifteen, eighteen through twenty, he says, If the world hates you, and it will in one form or another, he wants us to know this that it hated me before it hated you. That's what's behind it all, that's what's underneath it all. There's a hatred. There's this enmity. He says in 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. So, if you want to be, escape persecution, there is a way out. To be loved by the world and not identify yourself with Christ. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Again, the... Reason In the words of Christ, we identify with him and we live in a world that's filled with enmity. We know that there's wars. We have our own little wars in our own lives, in our personal lives. And we have wars with our friends and our families and our culture and everything else, all kinds of wars. We are in enmity. But the biggest war ultimately is evil against goodness and righteousness. And the, and the reason that we will suffer persecution is because this world actually, our sin nature, loves darkness more than light. Actually loves sin and evil more than goodness. And so into the world comes God incarnate perfection in sandals. Absolutely no transgression to one shade or another. Perfection. And the world hates him. How can that be? You think, wait a minute, something in right here. Christians are kind if they're obeying the Lord and they're walking in his ways. They're, they're the ones that are merciful. They're the ones that are going to hug you when you need a hug. They're the ones that are going to forgive you and not hold that, that transgression over your head and make your life miserable. And why would the world ever want to persecute the very people that are filled with the love of Christ? That's how much we love evil. That's how much we love sin, Jesus says. We revel in it. We value it more. So there's this tension. It's in the world. And if you're a believer and you haven't yet experienced it, you will. It's absolutely inevitable, no matter how old you are. No matter how young you are, you will feel its weight upon your shoulders. Because sooner or later, when you live a God-centered life, it clashes with the ungodly way. You put Christ first in your school, you're going to feel it. Put Christ first in the way you work, your work ethic, and being honest and not going with the flow of things, you're going to feel it. Christ might call us to go somewhere that is very, very dangerous to proclaim Him. Or He might call us to just stay here in a dangerous situation. But we will, sooner or later, feel the crunch. Because God in our lives will clash with the world. And it's really a good thing, though it's a painful thing. So why will we be persecuted? Think about the Beatitudes, because if you're poor in spirit, instead of proud, you'll be persecuted for it, because the world thrives off of pride. And if you mourn over your sin instead of love it, that's not a popular thing to do. If you're meek instead of manipulative and forceful, when you hunger and thirst, really starve For righteousness instead of just toy with it and play with it when it's to your advantage. When you're merciful instead of vengeful. When you're pure instead of defiled. And when you want to make peace and reconciliation instead of make war. You will be persecuted. And this is the character that Christ wants to build in every child of God. Think about it. If this is the character, if this is what it means to be a kingdom person, these beatitudes, he's, he's crafting this persona in us. And we're being loved by God for it and closer to God. But we're really also developing clothing or a character that will be hated by the world at the same time. That's what makes Christianity distinct. So, simply put, fallen humanity loves sin more than goodness, loves sin more than peace, more than forgiveness, more than mercy. You can be absolutely perfect like Christ and be absolutely, perfectly hated at the same time. Jesus puts it like this. Somebody has to go. There's a sense in which Sooner or later, something has to go in Luke sixteen thirteen through 15. No servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. The Pharisees were there as well. And he says, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You see, Christ is working in us a, a character where the abominations of what the world thinks of as an abomination and what Christ thinks of as an abomination is different. And so when we thirst after righteousness, we no longer crave the things of the world and they become displeasing to us and we begin to revile them in a good way like Christ. And yet the world begins to revile us. John Piper says we can see that a life devoted to righteousness will result in persecution. If you cherish chastity, your life will be an attack on people's free love of sex. If you embrace temperance, your life will be a statement against the love of alcohol. If you pursue self-control, your life will indict excesses, eating and drinking and so forth. If you live simply and happily, you'll show the folly of luxury and materialism. If you walk humbly with your God, you'll expose the evil of pride. If you're punctual and thorough in your dealings, you'll lay open the inferiority of laziness and negligence. If you speak with compassion, you'll throw callousness into uh, chaos and confront apathy by just being passionate and caring about things that are good. If you're earnest, you'll make the flippant look flippant instead of clever. And if you're spiritually minded, you will expose the worldly mindedness of those around you. you. See how that works? So simply by living the way Christ commands us to live, we will upset people. They won't like it. And some of them won't keep it to themselves. Even though we are in a culture of tolerance. So the challenge, there's a challenge here too because there's a a sense in which, and we'll talk about immediately after this, Jesus starts talking about you're the salt and light. So while he forms this character in us as individuals, it's that very character that is going to draw some people to God. They're going to see the difference in the world and they they will long for it. Those kind of real gritty characteristics because they're so countercultural. So it's going to have two potential effects. And the godlier you get, you have the potential to draw more people to to God, or you also have the potential to revile more people or invoke their wrath upon you. It's something to consider, and Timothy Keller says, if nobody's reacting either way, there's not much of Christ showing forth in you. If nobody's being attracted in. Because of your unusual love or being repelled because of your holiness, then there's not much going on in there. If you're always persecuted, you're probably an obnoxious person, because even Jesus wasn't persecuted all the time, he says. But if you've never been persecuted, you're probably a coward. A Christian has his priorities. And sooner or later, you're going to get it on the chin. Something to consider. You know, Some theologians and pastors just say that the biggest problem, at least in our culture in America, isn't that we're so persecuted. Our biggest problem is that we're not persecuted enough. What does it mean to not be persecuted enough? But to not be different enough, to not be holy enough. Kent Hughes says, live like the world lives, laugh at its humor, immerse yourself in its entertainment, smile benignly when God is mocked, act as if all righteous, act as all religions converge on the same road. Don't mention hell. Draw no moral judgments. Take no stand on the moral political issues of the day. Above all, do not share your faith. Follow this formula and it will be smooth." Sailing. Something to consider. Where are we today in our walk, in the path that we're following? Are we attracting people in by the decisions we're making, by our priorities? Are we repelling people because they see the passion of holiness and godliness that we have? Or are we just stuck somewhere in the middle because we're not really there or here? We're not making an impact on the kingdom and we're not making an impact for the world. Where does all this take us? Lastly, what does he have to say about its worth or its reward, but that it is great in verse 12? Whereas we would obviously not be so pleased or so happy or Think that it's a blessing at all. Jesus says rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Just to be clear that the rejoicing here is not in the persecution itself. It's not in getting beat up. That's kind of sadistic. And I've seen some Christians rejoice over the fact of the blood in the blood itself. The rejoicing is in the reward, Jesus says. It's in what's to come. It's in what He has for you. The gift that's wrapped up in your stance for Him, in your choice for Him, your faith in Him. It's producing this incredible prize, if you will, that we sung about in our song this morning. The light, the vision that opens up of heaven when you make these choices for Christ. And he says it's, it's great. The presence of God in our lives, as it goes on, can be a thing unmatched by any experience that you can have in this world. And, of course, it goes to the life after. Samuel Rutherford lived during the Reformation when the gospel was not so welcomed. He was a Scottish pastor. He wrote from his prison sty these words. I never knew by my nine years of preaching so much of Christ's love as he taught me in Aberdeen in six months imprisonment. Christ's cross, he says, it's it's such a burden as sails are to a ship or wings on a bird. Is the cross of Christ a burden to us? We have to know in verse 12 that what Jesus is talking about is our perspective. We have to have a certain perspective. We have to field that which comes our way every day, the circumstances, what's going on in the world, what's going on in our lives, from a perspective of eternity, from a perspective of the world, the kingdom of God that exists. And is conquering and overcoming the kingdom of the world. That's what God has for us. It's a perspective. And persecution is a tool by God. One of many that's used to shed us. To set us free from loving the world. To set us free from the, the, the master on the side that we might want in our Christian faith. And like Chronicles of Narnia where good old Eustace was painfully shedding his dragon skin to become the free person he was created to be. So God uses suffering and persecution to free us from clinging to the things of the world that are temporal and are not meant to bring that kind of satisfaction and safety into our lives. They're perishing. He wants to free us from those things for that which will never perish. And that's the kingdom of God. And we experience it now. We are experiencing it in this place, fellowshipping as the saints. And if you are a believer, you will experience it forever. And it only gets better and better the more serious we become about Christ. It's not just a fair reward. It's not just an even exchange. He says it's a great reward. The Greek word "polis" it's. It's multitudinal. It's many. It's immeasurable. The perspective that we need to walk through is that what Christ has for me reward wise is immeasurable compared to anything that you could ever imagine. It reminds me of the movie Hidden Figures when the director said we need new math. We need who can give me new math. We can't use what we have here. We need new math to put a man on a moon. And Jesus is saying, you need new math to comprehend what I have for you. New math to think about the suffering and where that will take you. It's a matter of perspective. And he doesn't give us ten reasons why we should endure it. He just gives us one. It's going to be great, great, great immeasurably great. That's the reason. It's a recompense. It's a reward. It's something that we have coming to us because of our identity in Christ. It prompts D.A. Carson once again to say Jesus' disciples then must determine their values from the perspective of eternity. Convinced That their light and momentary troubles, that Paul talks about in Corinthians as well, are achieving for them an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Far from being a depressing prospect, their suffering under persecution, which has been prompted by their righteousness, becomes a, a triumphant sign that the kingdom is theirs. Do our minds go there when we're suffering for Christ, that this is a, a beautiful sign, God. Thank you for this beautiful reminder that the kingdom is mine, that you have obtained it for me, conquered it for me. Heaven is more glorious than hell is hellish. Now how do we get there? How do we get this perspective? I No, really of one way, and it's called through the eyes of faith. We talked about this morning in Sunday school, the the substance of things unseen, the convictions of things hoped for, the assurance of things hoped for. It's the eyes of faith that enable us to see eternity. It's, It's the eyes of faith that enable us to look up and see the colors of the kingdom in the midst of this black and white world. And it is the word of God and the fellowship with the saints and prayers. It's the disciplines of grace that build our faith and expand our vision. This morning, John Razima was talking a little bit about the Eiffel Tower and how the elevator can hold 80 people. And I said, John, is it worth going there if you ever get a chance? He said, absolutely. You can see every direction, a beautiful view of the city. You see things up there that you could not possibly see down here on ground level and the eyes of faith take us up into the kingdom of God and enable us to see things that you cannot see on this level and that you will not see on this level. If we do not press into Christ, into his word and saturate ourselves in it and live our lives through his perspective and the eyes that he has for us and the world that awaits us. I want to conclude with this. My tendency is press on, persevere. I can push through most things. And a lot of times I give people the advice, you just got to put your big big boy pants on and endure it. And that's true. That's a part of the Christian faith and we do just have to endure it. But what we don't have to do, Jesus says, is just endure it with a sour attitude, with a cranky attitude. It's possible to actually see more of God through it. It's possible to see more of heaven through it. Not just endure like, yeah, I'm just going to be a martyr until Christ comes back and claims me. But marvel in the goodness of God and be excited about what He's doing In our lives. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a prolific writer and very, very popular preacher, 20th century Scottish guy, um, preached in England. Before he was a preacher, he was also a very renowned physician. Very popular. He was in high society, lots of money, lots of prestige, but he gave his life to Christ. He became a preacher His salary was cut, money was cut. His high society friends kind of sloughed him off as one of those, now you're one of those religious fanatics. And so his prestige also shrank. And it was kind of a form of things you lose when you choose Christ persecution. No longer held in high esteem from society. And one day a reporter that wanted to write an article about him came to him and in my words said something to the effect of, Okay, so you, um, you've you stepped away from your life of prosperity, the money you were making, and you were once socializing with high society, and, and that's gone. Your prestige is gone. And for it, you exchange the inner peace and tranquility of Christ. And my question for you is, was it, was it worth it? The peace with Christ, losing all of this wonderful stuff. Is it? Was it worth it? How's it coming out for you? Lloyd-Jones says, you don't understand the first thing about Christianity if you're going to ask me that question. He said, those things were my peace, prestige, money, high society. Now my peace is in Christ. My riches are in Christ. I'm adding. I'll quote him again in a minute. But I read more than what I'm quoting. My riches are in Christ. What have I given up? Versus what have I gained? There's no comparison. And he gives this illustration. He says. It's like. Having having to pay. $0.25, make a sacrifice, a personal sacrifice of $0.25 to put a stamp on a letter to get the million dollars that's in the mail for you. And you're going to ask me, was it worth it? You're going to ask me, when it's all said and done, was it worth it? Because I suffered this much to gain this much. How can you ask me such a question Was it worth it? He says, what a horrible thing. I gave up nothing. And I gained everything. That's where we need to be. John Piper says, Jesus wills for us to have our hearts primarily in heaven. Our hopes were primarily in heaven. Our longings primarily in heaven. Our joy primarily in heaven. In heaven, there's no other way that you can rejoice and be glad at the loss of your earthly joys. How shall we rejoice and be glad when these things are taken from us if we have not loved heaven more? Now, that's a good question to ask. What are we loving more? Look to the prophets, he says. Look to the martyrs. Whatever you must do to get your heart in heaven and off the world, do it. Otherwise, you will not be able to obey the command of our Lord Rejoice and be glad in persecution, for great is your reward in heaven. Let us look to heaven. Primarily, is that where we are? Is that the perspective that we view our lives, our worth, our meaning from? We need to primarily be in heaven. May Christ take us there. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.